Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll hear about a special kidney donation from a nurse to a young mother. The only thing I know about the girl is her name was Victoria, and they called me on my Victoria's fifth birthday. Sure enough, the lab tech that drew my blood's name was Victoria, and she had said, what are you doing? She goes, I have goosebumps. I have such a good feeling. Plus, the value of living donor kidney transplants. Patients who have high levels of antibodies who will wait 10, 15 years to get a match now have been given national priority. And how a paramedic and an emergency physician assist with National Geographic's The Great Human Race. We think about what could possibly go wrong uh, in this situation, in this environment, doing these activities, and then we match up, okay, this is how we would treat this normally. All that and a selection from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, transplant surgeon Vaughn Whitaker will explain the value of living donor kidney transplants. Plus, how are paramedics offering guidance and assistance to National Geographic's The Great Human Race? But first, a story about an Upstate University hospital nurse who was inspired by a Facebook post to donate her kidney to a woman she'd never met. HealthLink on Air contributor Joyce Gramza has the story. In a quiet room off a bustling hallway of Upstate University Hospital's surgical transplant unit, Jody Adams, a 40-year-old mother of six, is ready for surgery to remove her left kidney. I'm uh, here today to donate my kidney to a young mom that needed one. So we're uh, giving it to a 29-year-old woman that's a local woman here in Syracuse. And we saw this post on Facebook from the little boy saying, you know, help, my mom needs a kidney. If somebody could help me, would you do it? The post showed a three-month-old baby gazing into his mother's face. Hi, my name is Carter. This is my mommy, Victoria, holding me. She's pretty and smells nice. She doesn't feel so good, though. Dad said she needs a new kidney because hers are broken and we need someone to give her a new one. Janet Burton is baby Carter's grandmother, Victoria's mom. She and a large circle of family and friends were ruled out as good matches. She wrote the post in January. It was shared nearly 7,000 times. I never thought I would donate an organ. It never crossed my mind until I saw this post and this picture of her holding that baby. Jody, a registered nurse at Upstate, was among dozens who called Upstate's transplant unit to inquire. She was one of 49 people who went through physical and psychological screening and one of six identified as a potential donor. The only thing I know about the girl is her name was Victoria, and they called me on my Victoria's fifth birthday. How coincidental. So I get a call from the transplant team on, on my daughter's birthday. We went through all the questions, had the blood work drawn at uh, Upstate, and sure enough, the lab tech that drew my blood's name was Victoria, and she had said, what are you doing? She goes, I have goosebumps. I have such a good feeling. And I said, I do too. I said, I think I'm going to be this girl's match. Hi. Upstate's transplant chief, Reiner Grusner, will perform Jody's surgery. I think very few people still know that we happen to have two kidneys, that you need one kidney to live. And uh, sometimes the question is, what is the risk for donating one kidney? 
the risk is much lower than driving in a car. The risk of death is about 1 in 10,000. The risk of a major complication is less than 2%. So the overall risk is very low. On the other hand, it really is a gift of life. Rusner says that gift is all too rare. Each year, some 5,000 people with kidney disease die awaiting a transplant. We have over 100,000 patients waiting for a kidney transplant, and we do only about 17,000 kidney transplants per year in the United States. So there's a huge gap between people that will receive a kidney and those that are waiting and will never receive a kidney transplant. Living donations not only help to fill that gap, they're also better for patients. So on average, a deceased donor kidney lasts for 8 to 10 years, whereas from a living or living donor, both related or unrelated, the kidney lasts between 18 and 20 years. So frequently, a living donor kidney is a kidney for life. And long-term studies show the benefits may also extend to donors. The uh, donor, if he or she ever loses the function of the other kidney, would not have to wait for a transplant for six or eight years, but they will automatically go to the top of the list. And the life expectancy of donors is... Um, um, higher than for the rest of the population. That's because living donors are selected for being healthy and then get lifelong follow-up. So they're diagnosed very early with any kind of disease if it happens and treated accordingly. In most living donor transplants, a family member or friend directs their organ to a loved one. Altruistic donation, where someone selflessly gives their kidney to an unrelated recipient, is unusual. The U.S. Organ Procurement and Transplant Network reports that nationally, of the 5,500 living donor transplants in 2014, just 3% were altruistic. I mean, what you are doing is great. And as Grusner and Jody discussed before heading to surgery, many folks think they should keep their spare kidney in case a family member needs it. But as this case demonstrates, odds are they'd need to look beyond family for a match. We probably would have had problems finding a kidney for the recipient. You know, if we had just another 80,000 people a year in the nation that would donate out of the goodness of their hearts, we wouldn't have anyone on dialysis. Social media could help make a big dent in that need. Transplant surgeon Von Whitaker. Gallup polls show that over 80% of Americans are interested in, in donating, and if they were asked by a close friend or family, three-quarters of them would give and over 50% would give to a stranger if asked. So there is this um, reservoir of goodness out there. Today, Dr. Whitaker will receive Jody's kidney from Dr. Grusner and give it to Victoria. The kidney, new kidney is actually placed in the pelvis where it's near to the bladder. Um, so the connection to the bladder is um, very easy. So at the end of the day, um, a, re a recipient will end up having three kidneys. <laughs> and within three to four hours, um, by early afternoon, we're all done. And if everything goes as we expect, um, the kidney will make urine on the table, uh, which is usually a time of great celebration. Awaiting that celebration are two families who've also never met. Victoria's parents, Janet Burton and Scott Fitzpatrick, pace the hallway near the waiting room. So, I think we've been in pretty much every room in this hospital throughout the years. <laughs> they say since their daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at age 10, she suffered all sorts of complications, including periods of blindness from diabetic retinopathy. Victoria was diagnosed with end-stage renal disease um, about uh, two years ago, and she met with the transplant clinic to be evaluated to receive a new uh, kidney 
and during the process found out that she was expecting a baby. The high-risk pregnancy sent Victoria to dialysis, which brought constant nausea and vomiting and debilitating migraines. For the last six weeks of her pregnancy, she went to dialysis six days a week for six hours a day, and she had very little, if any, vision at that point, so she was, was pretty much just, she was there to make sure her baby was born alive and healthy. You know, it was horrible because she just sat there and listened to the TV, you know, for six days a week, six hours a day. But it worked. Carter was born premature but otherwise healthy, but Victoria's need for dialysis continued. So uh, we have been incredibly blessed with her little miracle baby, and um, we're just hoping now it's time for her miracle to get this kidney. Inside the waiting room, Jody's mom, Midge Staples, awaits word on her daughter. Kind of scared. Hoping everything goes all right for both people. I had mixed feelings at first, but I stand behind what my kids decide to do. Nice to meet you. Very well, very well. So she's doing, doing very well. It, it went as um, we had hoped it would go. Grusner's emergence from Jody's surgery brings good news and high praise. What your daughter is doing, I mean, that she really is a hero, you know. I mean, there are not that many opportunities where you can really save a life um, of someone else. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really great, great thing. So what you should do is take a deep breath, get something to eat. We'll just wait. Two days later, Jody and Victoria are up and about and have enthusiastically agreed to meet. Thank Jody. you. Hi. Yeah, we went over to meet Victoria. Just 20 minutes after their private introduction, I'm a little shy. Me too. Cameras roll as they meet the press. Uh, my name is Victoria, and I've had um, type 1 diabetes since I was 10. They hold hands, cuddle six month old Carter and spread awareness of living donation. She's got a miracle baby. This is and my miracle baby. Miracle Carter. baby, yeah. And thanks to Jody, yeah. mommy gets to spend a lot more time with them. Yeah, I always thought organ donation is, you know, when you put it on your driver's license, you know, when something happens to you, you would be an organ donor. But after seeing this post and realizing you can be a live donor, how can you not do it? Jody explains why from day one, she's felt Victoria is not a stranger. Victoria's, you know, somebody's mom, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. Yeah. She has a fiance, so it's... You're not just giving your kidney to a stranger, you're giving it to somebody's mother or sister or brother. And this is just two days after surgery and I feel great. You know, people worry about surgery after and I'm thinking, I was felt worse after having my appendix out than donating a <laughs> kidney, right? Yeah, and as someone, the one who needed the kidney, you can never imagine some random person pretty much doing it for you. Three weeks later, Victoria and her mom visit the transplant clinic for one of many follow-ups. It's been amazing. <laughs> um, I just feel so good. Like, sorry. <laughs> just feel really good. And I can see my boy. And, um, like, I have energy to, like, take care of him. Um, and, we, I don't know, I, I just have so much fun with him. It's awesome. Like, I have energy I never had before. Hi, good morning. Hi. Good to you? see you. Hi. Good morning. How are you been doing? Good. Sorry, Good. I got crying. Crying? Well, not like back. Good crying? <laughs> Good crying. How long? One moment. Yep. Kidney's coming in. Throughout this Hello? appointment. What's happening here is good, but... Um... Unfortunately, somebody passed away. Yeah. 
Hello? Whitaker makes urgent arrangements for another patient in need. Working out the details of shipment. Right now it's only 17 hours, which is still some time, but um, compared to your kidney, which we got <laughs> in two hours, yeah. right? You know? <laughs> That's one of the great advantages of a live donor. A live donor. Yeah. I'll take a two-hour kidney. Exactly. Yeah. But as Victoria admits, that kidney isn't that easy to ask for. You never want to ask people for help or to admit that you need help. Whitaker wants transplant centers to be more involved in helping all patients to make what he calls the big ask. Fortunately for the, the case that we saw today, um, a brilliant mother came up with a way of asking. I think we have the tools, we, we should use them. But there are ethical concerns. I think that really pushes the envelope of what are we requiring of ill people to package themselves in a way that a stranger would be willing to donate. And that makes bioethicists concerned. Physician Kathy Faber-Langendoon is a professor of bioethics at Upstate and directs its ethics consultation service. And there would be a danger in this system if getting an organ became a matter of sort of a beauty contest of who was most worthy. Today's system of getting organs aims for blind fairness. Deceased donations are based only on medical need. Directed donations to loved ones must be both uncompensated and uncoerced. Buying and selling human organs is strictly illegal. Faber-Langendoon says the middle ground of altruistic living donation is getting complicated. I think the inter an interesting question is what about the handful of people who in this case passed the medical screens and weren't chosen to donate a kidney? I think they have an interesting question before them if they were willing to give a kidney to this one person, but she happily no longer needs it because someone else rose up and was able to give a kidney. Then is there, does their altruism extend beyond this specific story? In fact, Upstate confirms that besides Jody, two others of the six possible donors from Little Carter's post have now actually set dates for their altruistic, anonymous living kidney donations. There was a um, Facebook account that was put up with a picture of a young girl with a new baby. Barbara Flower is one of them, a nurse from the Albany area who also couldn't resist Carter's message. My kidneys are great. I can live with one kidney, no problem. Um, and I just want to help somebody to have a good life, a good quality life like I have. And I've taken care of people with kidney disease um, that have had to go on dialysis, so I know they, what they go through. Uh, they're sick until they get to dialysis again. And I've actually dealt with someone that decided to say, no, I've had enough and they were gone within a week. Whitaker is moved by the ripple effect of Janet's Facebook post. It's amazing how, how this circle of positivity can go on. Which Janet says wasn't at all planned out. I just sat down one night and I just, I just thought, look at this beautiful grandson of mine and look what's happening to his mom. So it, it was just a desperate mom wanting to get her daughter well. And they're endlessly grateful it reached Jody. Either whether you're thinking about giving a kidney, like it definitely changes your someone's life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. And if you're looking for a kidney, it's not impossible either. Just keep your hopes up and pray. <laughs> 
I know a lot of prayers have been sent my way, and I'm very blessed. For HealthLink on air. Very blessed. I'm Joyce Gramzoff. Next, transplant surgeon Vaughn Whitaker helps us understand what's involved in donating a healthy kidney to someone in need. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Health Link on air. Linda Cohen along with you. You know, more than 100,000 people in the United States are waiting for a kidney transplant. And sadly, some of them will die just waiting for that transplant because there are not enough donors out there. But some new advances in the way kidney transplants are being done is making a difference. And joining us to explain more about all of this is Dr. Vaughn Whitaker. He's assistant professor of surgery specializing in hepatobiliary and pancreatic surgery and transplant services at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Whitaker. Thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you. I know you've been with us before, and we've talked about some of these ideas, and I wanted to revisit these very important breakthroughs because the goal here is to shorten that list of people waiting. And so some things have happened most recently to allow that to happen. But before we go there, help us understand why living donation is so important. Living donation, thank you for having me, first of all. Living donation is very important because, for one, this is an unlimited uh, source of um, organs to alleviate this over 100,000 people who are waiting and dying. 21 people die per day waiting for an organ. The second issue is living donor organs are of higher quality. These are from healthy persons. They last longer. They, the bonds that are created are, are priceless. Um, so from that point of view, these organs last longer, the patients who get them will need to be retransplanted less frequently. And so you get less stress on the system because these organs essentially last for a very long time. And I think it, must, it needs to be stated that all of us only need one kidney to live. So we have, and we have two. So the idea is it really doesn't necessarily do any harm to the donor and gives life basically to the recipient. That's true. We have two kidneys. The first kidney donor in 1954 um, died at age in his 80s and unrelated to his renal transplant after he donated in his 20s. And the kidney transplant itself does have a high success rate, I mean, in terms of basically helping the, that individual, the recipient, to lead a, a more normal life. Absolutely. The, the, the publicly available information, SRTR, shows this over 98% success rate in the first year, um, and it's for children, is virtually 100%. So what are the greatest stumbling blocks that you found to finding living donors? I mean, is it that people are afraid? I mean, what, what seems to be in the way of this? I think there, that, that's a correct assessment. There's an element of fear, um, fear of how much harm will come to them as a result of doing this procedure. 
Um, there is a fear of pain. There is a fear of um, not being able to work, especially if you are from an economically challenging situation. Um, there is a fear of um, death, really. Um, and then, of course, there is family um, that you need to overcome um, who may not think this is a good idea. I want to get to a lot of that, those kinds of concerns as a little bit later, but what I want to talk about right now immediately is there have been some breakthroughs that have enabled you um, to find more methodologies for making these kinds of, where there were, there were stumbling blocks before in terms of certain issues in terms of finding good matches. For example, this whole idea of blood type compatibility. There have been changes. Explain that to us. Absolutely. Um, in the past, we would tell patients if they came with a relative or a friend or, or anyone who came with them, if they're not of a compatible blood group. So for example, if you're a blood group O, that person needs to be a, a blood group O in order to donate. Um, now that has changed tremendously. It doesn't matter what the blood type of your donor is. Um, they're more than one ways we can actually proceed with getting this um, transplant done. One of the ways is to is to get rid of some of the antibodies that you would naturally have towards that particular donor, or we can perform what we call swaps. So basically, that has been taken off the table as a problem. The other thing that I thought was a fascinating breakthrough is this whole idea of pairs, and eventually this whole idea of chains. Explain what I mean. So, you know, these are performed usually out of the, the, the abundance of goodness of someone's heart. And in fact, we have two coming up. We have two persons who have come forward um, to say, I want to donate my kidney. And because they have come forward, what we're able to then do is give, and we call these donors altruistic donors, we're able to give their organ, especially if they're a blood group O, which means they can give to anyone, to someone who is in an incompatible pair situation. So they have a donor, so let's say someone is a blood group A and their donor is a blood group B. That blood group O altruistic donor who has come forward can then give to the A recipient and then the B donor who was originally incompatible can then now give to someone who is a blood group B who may have an incompatible um, donor pair. So the, excuse me, the bottom line now here is that by making these matches kind of almost across larger populations, you can find, basically you can create compatible pairs where there were none before. Absolutely. And you get this domino effect of positivity where um, the altruistic donor is able to give to one incompatible pair and then that donor in that incompatible pair can then give to another incompatible pair, and that can continue for a very long, long time. So it sets up almost a chain, a, a chain effect. Exactly. And the other very significant change, seems to me, is this idea that you don't have to necessarily do it in the same institution at the same moment. That is exactly true. It can be done um, across institutions, even across continents. Um, this is not commonly done, but it has been reported that um, it, it can be done. The, the, the kidney can be flown across the Atlantic. Um, right now, it's most commonly performed within the continental United States, and it doesn't have to happen during the same sitting. It can happen weeks or, or, or months um, afterwards. So it, when you say weeks or months, how long can they keep a kidney alive and well, functional? Well, I mean, 
one pair can oh one pair can can take, happen and right. then the the, the next right. the next part of the domino right. effect can then right. happen in a different moment in time. So there's been such a, um, an increased demand for kidneys. Explain that why in this basically all worldwide, but in this country specifically. Right. Um, you know, if you look at the graph, we see that from the we've been tracking this since the 1980s. There's been an exponential explosion of those who have been added to the wait list. For one thing, um, people are more confident about uh, the, the the transplant. It has come to to become a mainstream medical team, so more people are being referred um, for transplantation. The other thing is, our uh, people are living longer, um, and dialysis treatments and management of of patients um, is getting better. So patients are actually living longer on dialysis, and and um, the government actually mandates that transplant be an option. But isn't it also true that we have more people who are diabetic, and maybe who are you know due to obesity or what have you, and end up in renal um, failure? And I probably should have mentioned that first. There is actually an increase in the number of patients who are iller. Um, more diabetics. In fact, there's a concern that by 2040, the number of diabetics is going to be so much more. And this is being fueled in part by the by the um, obesity epidemic. Um, for one, you know, during this time, because of this, we're facing the notion, um, because of childhood obesity, that we may have a generation that has a, a shorter lifespan compared to previous generations. And there's a new system that's been put in place, though, to help another way of helping with this list, and it has to do with there's a new kidney allocation system. Explain that. So the new kidney allocation system came into place in December 4, 2014, and um, this seeks to make kidneys more available to groups that were prior um, more disadvantaged. So, for example, children, they have been made as as they ought to be a priority in getting the best organs. So the best organs typically are from the younger donors, deceased donors. The other group that has benefited greatly in this regard are African Americans. Um, they tended to be on dialysis for much longer periods of time. In the previous system, your wait time was counted from the time you actually registered or you came to the transplant center and say, I want to be um, on the transplant list, regardless of how long you had been on dialysis prior to that. Now it's been changed. It's, it's based on the length of time you've been on dialysis. And what this is, this has benefited the African-American groups because they tended as a group, when it compared, compared it to other groups, to have some of the longest dialysis um, times. The other group that benefited greatly from this um, Patients who have high levels of antibodies who will wait 10, 15 years um, to get a match um, now have been given national priority. So instead of just enjoying local and regional priority, they now have national priority. And whenever a kidney becomes available nationally, they get to see whether or not they're a match. So their wait time is uh, much, much shorter. That's, that sounds like it's made a big difference. So one other point I think we started to talk about, people being afraid to be a kidney donor. I think along with this new allocation system, it must be noted that if you do give a kidney, 
you would be put to the very top of the list should you run into trouble. In other words, if you're a donor and you run into trouble, you would be at the very top to receive a kidney. Absolutely. Um, whenever you donate an organ, this is true. You, If you ever need an organ at any point in time, you will be given priority for getting an organ. So how does it, exactly how does somebody become a kidney donor? What are you looking for? You know, What kind of person do you need to be the donor? Tell us about that. Anyone can be a kidney donor. All they have to do is be willing to, to, to do it. Um, be over 18, be relatively healthy, um, be, encourage people to, um, to be lean, essentially, um, not be overweight, or if you're overweight, to lose some weight. Um, diabetics, um, we don't take kidneys from diabetics. Um, but generally, um, healthy, free of any cancers, free of any infections, and um, that, and be willing. The most important thing is just being willing. Um, typically, we don't ask patients to necessarily screen themselves, but just call the transplant center, and um, and we have many great professionals who are will will comb through your medical records with 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 very fine tooth comb and. Um, if there are any issues, we'll, 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 we'll raise them with you. So willingness and being uncoerced is very important and probably having a support system around you to, to support you through it. But what is it, what's it like for a donor? What do they actually go, you know, what do they go through? So initially, the donors come in. They, they indicate to us that they are willing. They go through that screening process. If it's a go, there are no indi- contraindications identified. They're invited to come in to do some preliminary blood tests to get their blood type. We also want to check your urine, um, a 24-hour urine collection or some other method of checking how well your kidney functions. Um, Once we've established that your kidney functions well and there are no major contraindications, we then have you see all providers. And um, typically, once you've gotten through that, we also want you to see your social worker or dietitian and um, other members of the multidisciplinary team. If you can go through that without any issues, you're found to have a good support system then um, you're a go. And what happens to you? How soon after you make that kind of initial foray might you undergo surgery? It could be as short as uh, four months, four, four weeks um, into, into coming forward. And what's it like for the donor, though? I mean, how long is the hospitalization? Just briefly, I don't want to run out of time. Just give us a, a thumbnail of what happens. Uh, two to three days you're in a hospital. The surgery lasts about four hours. We do it by these mini incisions laparoscopically um, so you're able to be back to yourself um, usually in short order usually been two to six we give you six weeks off but generally speaking patients are able to move around and be able to do their regular activity within two weeks so basically how can people find out more about how to become a kidney donor you can call us um, at the transplant center at 315-464-5413 and ask to speak to a living transplant coordinator or any other surgeons or nephrologists. And there are people who have donated kidneys who are now coming forward to help explain what the experience is like for someone who's interested? Absolutely, and we have lots of living donors who are doing this. Dr. Whitaker, thank you so very much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Vaughn Whitaker, Assistant Professor of Surgery specializing in hepatobiliary, pancreatic surgery, and transplant services at Upstate Medical University. Next up, 
how a paramedic and emergency physician use their expertise in wilderness medicine to assist a National Geographic Channel series as it was filmed in remote locations. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. The life of an EMT and paramedic is usually filled with excitement and the need to respond quickly and effectively to many life-threatening situations. Joining us to give us an inside perspective on just how far afield these adventures can take us is Todd Curtis. He's a paramedic and the Medical Safety Oversight Director for the National Geographic program, The Great Human Race. Also joining us is Dr. Jeremy Joslin. He's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine, and he's the Director of the Wilderness and Expedition Medicine Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Todd, let me start with you. Um, you are trained or have been trained as a paramedic here at Upstate Medical University. Tell us about that and anything else that you're up to right now. Correct. Um, so I started doing emergency medicine back in actually 1987 when I became a basic EMT and uh, did that and a number of other things for years. And in 2007, uh, I came to Upstate and uh, went from being a critical care EMT to getting my paramedic certification. Um, and how is that different? Uh, it's a more advanced um, skill set. Uh, a lot of it, the, it's less the practical skills skills we both start ivs it's more that as a paramedic i have a lot more background and and judgment uh there are things that as a paramedic you're allowed to do based on your own judgment of the scene at hand that as a critical care emt i would have to call a medical director and, and explain to him what the situation was and request something so it's a higher level of training absolutely okay but then we just alluded to the fact that you've been involved in some other things like the great human race so how did all of that unfold because you're not you're you're doing the paramedic emt stuff Tell yeah us about that. so i I've, throughout my life i've been involved with uh backpacking and kayaking and other things and uh, one of the things that came out of the relationship when i was at, uh, doing my paramedic program was that i met and had the opportunity to interact with the physicians within the department of emergency medicine one of whom was dr joslin and uh, over time um, some of the things that he was doing were intriguing to me, some of the, the remote races. And uh, the first job we actually worked together was uh, the Jungle Marathon in Brazil. I had the opportunity to go down with Dr. Joslin and work on a 10-day, multi-day stage running race. And that kind of started the process that, that's led to where we are today. Um, so since then, we've had a, a, a collaborative relationship where uh, I'll work on races that he has involved or when I get opportunities to do TV work, um, Dr. Joslin serves as my medical director on those races or on those events. So, Dr. Joslin, let me turn to you. You have had now a great deal of experience. You're running this wilderness medicine program here at Upstate. Tell us a little bit about what that means and yeah. how it's different from other aspects of emergency medicine. Sure. Um, I think it's it's very similar to emergency medicine, um, but uh, there's some specialized knowledge, and then uh, that emergency care instead of taking place. Uh, in the EMS world or in the in the emergency department takes place out in a remote or austere environment. Uh, and that's what our program uh, does. We, we teach physicians 
and, and even residents, students, uh, EMTs, paramedics, uh, how to practice in that environment, uh, the specific knowledge that's involved in it. And then we also provide uh, medical services to industry that requires medical care or medical oversight in those kinds of environments and at those, those kind of events. When Todd, you got involved in, in the National Geo Program, tell us briefly how that came about and then what, what was your role? What were you supposed to be doing out there? So um, actually, interestingly, uh, the initial work came from that um, first uh, race that I went on. Uh, one of the fellow paramedics on that race uh, was contacted by someone who was working on a different National Geographic show that I went on to do um, and requested, did he know anybody who could go out and work as a remote paramedic? Um, and that led to working on the, the Raft, which was a show that aired last year. Um, also so, National Geo. Also National Geographic. Uh, so uh, uh, I worked on the raft for the, that first season, both the pilot and the season, and Dr. Joslin was the medical director for that. And then uh, in, I believe it was May of last year, uh, I got a call. Uh, actually, Dr. Joslin and I were together working on uh, the, the Iron Man. Uh, and I got a call from one of the producers from The Raft saying that he was now on a new show called The Great Human Race. And uh, they had filmed a couple episodes in Africa and had some pretty significant concerns about the safety of the, the local services they were getting. So they asked me if I could come to Africa, which, of course, I said yes. And um, they said next week. And I said, okay. <laughs> uh, so uh, I was called at 5.30 on a Tuesday evening, and the following Wednesday uh, I was on a flight to Ethiopia. So Adventure called and you responded, yeah, and obviously a... your connection with Dr. Joslin has played a significant role. Absolutely. Explain that a little bit. So what happens? You go out into the wilderness, and they're out looking at you as kind of the hospital, the mm -hmm. medical center, the doctor, everything, surgeon, everything all wrapped up into one, in a sense, yep. in the wilderness. But you also have a safety net. Yeah, and, 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 and it really it starts before I leave. Um, so Dr. Joslin and I consult on what equipment that I carry, what medications that I carry, um, and, and using the skill sets depending on where we're traveling would vary what we would carry. Uh, and, and, and what I'm able to do when I'm working in the middle of Ethiopia or Mongolia or Turkey um, the, the leeway of scope of practice is broader than if I'm working in the states where there's tight regulation on certifications and licensure. Um, so and that hierarchy of probably people you have to refer to or exactly, consult with or what exactly. have you. So when I work in, uh, on this particular job, uh, we worked in Alaska and in Oregon, my scope of practice was significantly reduced there because the timeline to get the certifications and, the, and everything needed to operate within what I'm capable of was limited. Um, so there it was much more of, it had things developed more severely, instead of providing care myself, we would have referred to a local clinic or a local hospital. So Dr. Jowson, you have been the medical director, kind of the safety net for a lot of his efforts here out there in the field. So what kinds of things come up? Oh, you could imagine, um, and I, I don't want to get into specifics, but you could imagine what kinds of questions come up when you've got a, a crew filming a show in Ethiopia, and if you watch the show and see some of the things that they're doing, uh, you could imagine some of the accidents or, or even just you know minor illnesses that, that might come up, and the interesting questions that might come up as well. 
Uh, so it's it's never dull. Uh, it's it's a pretty exciting exciting job, um, and I, and I think that uh, just just watching the show, you could just if instead of watching the show and enjoying it for what it is, just start thinking about oh what what could have happened uh, while they were producing or filming this show there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with emergency medicine physician Dr. Jeremy Joslin and paramedic and outdoor medical safety advisor Todd Curtis. We're talking about travels worldwide, both with National Geo and I guess you've done it for others. Let me just get a little bit more detail on the show. So the great human race, what's the premise? So the concept was um, they brought in two individuals, um, one of whom is a, a PhD in anthropology who specializes in primitive tools. The other was a survival expert. And the concept was that uh, humanity started in near the Rift Valley in Central Africa. And in the process of moving to North America, they migrated over time. And that took hundreds of thousands of years. So these two individuals followed that migratory path and as we went to different countries they lived and operated as humans did when we first reached that area so so in other it, words that period of time that period of time the, the information be, that we knew about exactly. how they would have lived the tools they may the or tools may not they have had, had the or, clothing how they hunted what they hunted um, how they they operated so each location, they, as they progressed along, they got more developed tools, they got better clothing, um, and, and they lived and made those clothes. They made those tools, and they lived for that period of time while we were filming as those individuals would have at it's that quite time. quite an ambitious undertaking. So I guess what I'm curious about, and I don't want to run out of time, give me an example of some major occurrence that had a challenge that you had and then either had to get on your satellite phone to call or, or you were able to manage on your own. Uh, a lot of it was uh, outside of the normal scope of practice of a paramedic in, say, a Syracuse um, were issues like infection and um, GI issues. So a lot of the, the consult time, um, I remember sitting uh, on the sat phone next to uh, a river 20 miles south of the border of Russia and Mongolia uh, with Dr. Joslin discussing which antibiotic we were going to use for a, a patient that was having some pretty serious GI issues. Um, and, and we tried a number of treatments and, and kind of gotten to that point. But how did you um, get those medications? Let's just, I mean, I'm assuming you came, you came equipped with some things, yeah, but I carry, you couldn't have had everything. No, I, I don't, but I carry a pretty comprehensive kit with me, um, and, and it depends on the show. There are shows where uh, literally we might be backpacking in with not just the medical kit, but with all of my normal gear, so I have to literally carry everything on my back. Like? Um, my sleeping bag, my tent, my... So, right. And, and then from there, I have to figure out what medical gear I can also carry. So give me an example of some of the medical gear that you might take. Dr. Joslin, what would he be taking? Yeah, um, a handful of antibiotics, a handful of medications for allergy um, or, or anaphylaxis, some of the serious problems. I think just to make it a little bit more broad, uh, what we do a lot of is really risk management, and we do a risk assessment. We think about what could possibly go wrong uh, in this situation, in this environment, doing these activities, and then we match up. Okay, this is how we would treat this normally. Now let's shave that back a little bit. Can we use this drug for two different purposes so we don't have to bring two different drugs? And we sort of plan out, and we actually do a lot of 
strategizing over what to bring, how much of it mm-hmm. to bring because of weight and volume. And I'm sure. These are, these are big issues. Uh, so we do a lot of prep work, as Todd alluded to earlier, so that when we get into that situation, we're not scrambling around for a certain medication. We've already sort of thought of this issue in general, uh, and we've got a plan for it in place, and we've already got the right thing. Or we've got a plan to acquire what we need, or we have a plan to evacuate that person to where they can get the care. So, so all that, these circumstances we think about ahead of time. So what about things like where there's really like serious injury? Let's say someone has a bad fall or a run-in with an animal and they right. need they may need blood, they need suturing, they need things that are very hard to come by in the wilderness. What do you do in that situation? Yeah, and, and in that case, uh, and the best example I can give them, the closest near miss we had was in Mongolia. Um, we almost had two of our crew vehicles um, crash into each other. Um, at at a high rate of speed. We missed each other by about six inches. Uh, And there were eight people between those two vehicles. So my thought as I see the two vehicles approaching each other is that I'm going to have to deal with uh, serious trauma in eight people, of which I'm one of them. Um, And at that point in time, we were uh, a 12-hour drive on dirt roads would be um, pretty broad. Uh, and I needed to figure out how to get back to the capital to then fly to Korea, which would have been the closest real trauma center. So my job would have been to stabilize them uh, and alert Dr. Joslin and a whole team of people to be ready um, to deal with these potentially eight patients. But I guess, fortunately, the postscript here is you didn't fly. We missed fly. each other. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the type of event that we have to be prepared to potentially deal with. And that involves evacuation processes and, and that we put into place in advance so we know what we're going to so do. So before we run out of time, what led you to this whole thing? I mean, what what you obviously chose not to go the medical route, the classic medical route, like Dr. Joslin has done. So what led you to all of this? Yeah, it actually was a lot of timing. Um, when, uh, when I first started and I was actually thinking about going back to medical school, I went back, uh, re-careered and went back and got my bachelor's in biology with the plan to go to medical school. And um, I keep traveling the world and getting these amazing <laughs> opportunities. And uh, so that's adventure calls, adventure calls. And uh, if it eventually stops, I might go back and uh, and, and pursue something more advanced. But uh, right now, uh, I'm having a lot of fun. And, and in the meantime, you're also teaching. I understand. Yep. yep. I teach uh, at Upstate uh, ACLS and Pals, and within the paramedic program. Uh, and then I also have chances to teach around the world with uh, remote and wilderness medicine. So. Well, the whole field is fascinating, and I want to thank you both for coming in and sharing it. I think it's a window into a world that many of us really don't know much about. I mean, we understand the importance of EMTs and paramedics in our daily lives here in a more kind of urban environment, but the fact that you guys really do go out there and and rescue people and keep people safe and alive in these harrowing types of situations is very reassuring. So I want to thank you both very much for coming in and sharing that with us. Thank you. Yeah, and, and you're going to continue to work together. Is that the plan? That's the plan. New adventures coming all the time? Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Well, thanks again for coming in. My guests have been Dr. Jeremy Joslin. He is the um, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University and the Director of the Wilderness and Expedition Program. And uh, Todd Curtis, a Paramedic and Medical Safety Oversight Director, most recently for the National Geographic Program, The Great Human Race. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, 
Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. There's nothing like a good mystery story to hold our attention. Medical student Julian Grace Abad won the writing award here at Upstate last year for her story, Valerie's Secret. Here is an excerpt. Valerie's father told her, once she was old enough to understand the difference between secrets and lies, that between the two, secrets are the greater evil. The way he explained it at the time didn't make sense, but he was her father, so she took his word for it. And when he slid her off his knee, bent down, and offered her his crooked little finger, she reached up and gave him her own without a second thought. No secrets, she said. Her father laughed deep in his throat. Promise, he said. Promise, Valerie murmured and clenched the steering wheel to still her hands. What was that, said her father. He squinted at the temperature controls, his glasses halfway down his nose. Valerie batted his hand away and turned the heat up. Nothing, she said. A hazy green light bled through the fog. Valerie lurched forward, veered right, and swung onto the interstate while her father smiled at the lights of the medical school and the hospital, watching them fade into the frigid sky. Valerie coughed, harder than she had the night before, but not from the dust that floated through the air and settled snow-like on the leatherette seats. How school, said her father absently. Lots of work, not enough sleep. Hmm. We're done with gross anatomy, thank goodness. Couldn't wait for that to be over. That bad, huh, said her father. Why, was it too gross for you? As he chuckled at his terrible joke, Valerie found herself smiling. She could never get tired of her father's laugh. Quick, easy, earthy, like he meant it every time. When he laughed, Valerie could almost pretend that everything was all right. Almost. He looked even smarter than last time. Crisp's shirt tucked neatly into well-ironed slacks, Smooth leather shoes, polished and gleaming like mirrors. He wasn't dressing up for her, was he? Of course I am, he always said. I'm going to be the father of a doctor, so I should look the part. But Valerie knew he was just getting old and a bit insecure. He didn't have to worry, though. His hair hadn't changed color yet, just a few specks of gray around the ears, like salt scattered on asphalt. Well, Valerie had a story for her father this Thanksgiving one that was sure to turn his hair the wrong shade of white. She'd kept this story to herself for three months already, gotten a second, third opinion, had more scans and tests than she wanted to remember. And every day, as she kept on waiting and working and waiting some more, she got just a little bit weaker and just a little bit closer to the end of her story. Five years wasn't a long time if you thought about it. She'd have to tell her father before the end of day. Valerie knew that. Even if she wanted to keep her secret, he'd notice the darkness under her eyes, the weight she'd lost, the cough that wouldn't go away. He'd ask, she'd tell him, and when she was finished, he wouldn't be laughing. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we explore new treatments for eating disorders. 
breakthroughs in radio surgery, and how an art conservator is playing a role in preserving medical history. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or you might check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening.